0: Welcome to Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, which is made possible by you, our patrons on Patreon. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, we're always looking for ways to thank you, our patrons, for your generosity in making all our shows on StarQuest possible. And this is one of those ways. We reached out to you and asked if you had questions you'd like to ask, and we got many, many great responses. So that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World. Jimmy, let's get right into our questions. Our first question is from Father Anthony, and he asks, "Uh, Dear Jimmy, thanks for the great show and your clear and cool analysis of so many heated questions. Here's my question. May Catholics believe in pre-Adamites? And is it possible that pre-Adamites, as well as antediluvianism, anti-Diluvian, got a big choice in it, right? Anti-Diluvian post-Adamites could actually be today's extraterrestrials?
1: Okay, so first, for people who may not be familiar, we should talk about what pre-Adamites are, as the term would suggest. These would be people who lived before Adam. And um the idea of pre-Adamites has been around for quite some time uh in Christian history. It's been discussed at various points. You know, there are mysteries in or at least things that people have wondered about in the text of early Genesis, like where Cain says You know, uh, my punishment is more than I can bear. Whoever finds me is going to kill me. And while that could mean his own later brothers and sisters from Adam and Eve would kill him, other people have wondered and said, well, wait, could that mean someone who's already out there? And so there's been discussion of this topic for uh, for quite a long time. The and the 19th century, for example, had a lot of discussion about this. One of my favorite uh, characters in the Gilbert and Sullivan opera, The Mikado, is a character named Puba, who is very high-born and very proud of his heritage. And he describes himself as being of pre-Adamite ancestral descent. So that's how impressive his ancestors are. They come from before Adam. And he even says he can trace his heritage back, back, back to a protoplasmal primordial atomic globule. So he's he's very proud of his ancestry, but that's just an illustration of how people were talking about pre-Adamites. Well, um, the the short answer of may Catholics believe in them is yes. Uh, there, you know, Adam ha- is presented as the root of the entire human race, but that doesn't mean that there couldn't have been other creatures that God created before Adam. In fact, these days, with the Magisterium being very open to the idea of human evolution, th- on the evolutionary theory, there would be pre atomites or people who lived or almost people who lived before the very first human being. And so exactly what they would be in terms of their subspecies, you know, they would be fellow hominins like we are, but exactly what they would be, whether they would be Neanderthals or Denisovans or something else, maybe even something we haven't discovered, we couldn't really be sure of because while Adam is presented as biblical, what you could call biblical man, the Bible doesn't give us the information we would need to map biblical man onto um, the paleontological record. And oh, we can say that, okay, homo sapiens sapiens of the modern variety, we're biblical man, but what else may have counted as biblical man is something that we really can't know. And and it's a matter for discussion. However, um On the evolutionary theory, there would have been other people, if not biblical man in the full sense, like we are, something very close to that, who would have lived before Adam. And so that's one way that pre-Adamites not only could, but would be there. So about the second question, could they be today's extraterrestrials? Well, um, the... The theory has been proposed. Um, so they would now they could have left Earth and gone to live on another planet and then come back. So that's one way they could be extraterrestrials. However, there's another proposal, which is that what we think of as extraterrestrials are actually a hidden race that lives here on Earth. This is known as the crypto terrestrial hypothesis. And we will be talking about it in future episodes. It's one way of explaining why some reported extraterrestrials look so human, because maybe they're another branch of the human family that has been here. And in that case, they uh, they could be, these crypto terrestrials could be pre-atomites. Um, the foremost advocate, or at least person who has discussed the crypto terrestrial hypothesis in recent times, was a gentleman named Mac Tanis. And so we'll have a link to uh, where you can read about Mac Tanis and also for his book, The Crypto Terrestrials.
0: Excellent. So our next question comes from Father Jeff Horton, who asks Are all crop circles man made, or is something else going on?
1: Okay, so we'll have some links to where uh, you can read about cop circles. Uh, one of the links will be to Wikipedia, but um, Wikipedia has a notable skeptical secular bias. Um, the the secular skeptics have really kind of taken over uh, Wikipedia's paranormal pages, and they just diss everything, and it, it can be useful for hearing the skeptical side of things. So Wikipedia is a good resource for that, but um, you also want a little more balance. And so the British Society for Psychical Research um, a while back created an online resource called the Psy Encyclopedia. And it has, uh, you know, uh, scholarly articles on these subjects that are deliberately balanced. They cover both the Um, the skeptical side of things and the side of things that is more open to paranormal phenomena. So we'll have links to both of those on crop circles. In terms of my own opinion, well, I think that, you know, if you look at the crop circles that have appeared in recent years, some of them, many of them are just extraordinarily complex. And my personal thought is that certainly all of the I would be very confident that all of the super complex crop circles are of human manufacture uh, we we've even had humans who have admitted that they had made crop circles uh, for example in nineteen ninety one a couple of uh, British gentlemen named Doug Bauer and Dave Chorley uh, admitted that they had created a lot a lot of crop circles and when they were told oh you 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 couldn't have they you know, they display these properties you couldn't have made, they then showed how they did it. And yeah, in fact, they could do it. Um, That doesn't mean, though, that all crop circles are human produced. There are various natural uh, phenomena that can, or natural causes that could be responsible and that have been proposed as possible explanations. One of them is archaeological remains, because if you have... Archaeological remains, you know, like the um, the remains of a circular hut or something or other structure right under the surface that can affect the the plants that grow on the surface. You know, they may not be able to put down deep roots and so they don't grow as tall, whereas the surrounding area, the plants do grow taller. And that could be responsible for a kind of crop circle that would appear every year in the same spot and reflect the shape of whatever the archeological remains are. Um, also, uh, it has been proposed, at least speculatively, that um, weather phenomena may be responsible for some, uh, some crop circles. And these would be very simple ones. You know, Like in the early days, before the 1980s, crop circles were very simple. They tended to just be circles not elaborate geometric designs. And so it's been proposed that um, weather phenomena like tornadoes or ball lightning could, you know, disturb the grass or the grain in a way that produces a crop circle. Another possibility is that they're not human made, but animal made. Um, that animals might produce them. And as an example of how that could happen, i point to a recent experience at the time of recording. There's been a group of sheep in China that have been walking in a circle for weeks. And there's video of that. We'll have a link to some video of that. Um, and you might say, well, why would sheep just walk in a circle? And in the case of this China incident... You know, there's been discussion of that and speculation about that. One, uh, there is a disease that sheep can get that um, causes them to walk in a circle. You know, it it disorients them in such a way and they're they're herd animals, so they follow each other. And once it gets started, they can just walk in a circle for a long period of time. It's called circling disease. And that's at least the common name for it. And so it could be if some animals get into a uh, into a grain field, they could tramp down the grain in a circular pattern. However, in fairness to the paranormal side of things, there are claimed abnormalities uh, in some crop circles where unusual things like radi- abnormal levels of radiation have been found in the crop circle. And so that has just, you know, appeared overnight. And so I um, will be doing additional research on crop circles and we'll be doing a future episode on them. But those are some possibilities for now.
0: Our next question comes from Oliver Thompson, who asks, Hey, Jimmy, I enjoy going to Mass, but I've always wondered how much of Mass do you think you could miss for your Sunday obligation to still be fulfilled? I've been a minute or two late to Mass on occasions, as I assume everyone has, and I think it's clear that the obligation is still fulfilled. I'd like to hear your threshold regarding how late someone could be, even for legitimate reasons, and still fulfill their obligation. The same would go for having to leave early for a family emergency or the like. Thanks a bunch.
1: So this answer used to be clearer prior to the Second Vatican Council. If you go back into the uh, documents of the time, it's clear that what they really wanted you there for to fulfill your obligation was the liturgy, what we would call the liturgy of the Eucharist, and in particular, the canon of the mass, which is the Eucharistic prayer. If you left, you know, after communion, that didn't invalidate your obligation. And if you got in as late as the beginning of the canon, that would be okay. But they really wanted you there for that part. With the Second Vatican Council, they wanted to uh, people to be there not only for the Liturgy of the Eucharist, but also for the Liturgy of the Word that precedes the Liturgy of the Eucharist. And they didn't want people scrupling about exactly how much you could miss and stuff like that. So when they rewrote the law, they they didn't really focus on the question of, how much can you miss or what has what do you have to be there for? they just said go to mass and they didn't really specify parts of it beyond that um, they these days they they want us there for the whole thing, but they do acknowledge that there are legitimate excuses so if you are a couple minutes late because of traffic or you you know whatever reason you don't got to go to a whole nother mass. Um, it's okay. If you need to leave for a family emergency to take care of that, you know, a few minutes early, you don't got to go to a whole nother mass. Um, as long as you're making a good faith effort to be there and, you know, there's some, you're not just blowing it off and saying, Oh, I'm not, I don't care when I get there. You know, as long as you're making an effort to be there it, it, you shouldn't really be scrupulous about this. If I have to answer the question, well, I would say based on principles from before the revision of the liturgy, uh, if if someone says, well, I, I I got there really late, I missed the liturgy of the Eucharist, but I, wa- I missed the liturgy of the Word, but I was there for the Eucharistic prayer, did I fulfill my Sunday obligation? I would say, yeah. Um, because that's, that's what's always historically been um, what you needed to do in order to, in order to fulfill it. Even then, though, like, let's say you're at, um, at, at Mass, you're there, it, it is during the Eucharistic prayer, and something happens, maybe a child starts screaming, or, I mean, your child starts screaming, or something else, and you've got to step out of the room during the Eucharistic prayer. That's okay. That's a legitimate excuse. The church recognizes excuses. If if you've gone down to the church and you've been there during the Eucharistic prayer and you had to step out for a couple minutes, that's not going to invalidate either. So I would say as long as you're making a a good faith effort to be there, um, and as long as you're there for, you know, a substantial part of the liturgy of the Eucharist, you're fine in terms of fulfilling your Sunday obligation.
0: As the parent of five kids, I have spent many times where, as the Eucharistic prayer is beginning, even a child says, Daddy, I have to go to the bathroom. And I mean, what do you do? You just can't you can't make them stay. So, yeah, I've always thought that uh, Mary and Joseph were parents. I think Jesus understands. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Our next question comes from James Isabella, who says, do you think that the double slit experiment In which electrons are shown to change their behavior simply based on observation, has any relevance to the idea of a creator? That somehow observation and intelligence are built into the universe itself?
1: Well, um, this is an idea that's certainly been proposed. Um, So there are various quantum mechanical events that um, occur, and quantum mechanics is interpreted in a bunch of different ways. Um, sort of the standard interpretation of quantum mechanics, and by standard, I just mean it's the one that you get taught in school, um, at least historically, is known as the Copenhagen interpretation, which is sometimes shut, summarized as shut up and calculate. Don't really worry about the ontological, metaphysical implications of all this. Just run the equations. Um, there are other ways of articulating the Copenhagen Interpretation, but that's one of them. Uh, but there are a bunch of others, and some some uh, some physicists have looked at how quantum mechanics works, and they've said, "Well, to me, it looks like you really do need consciousness to um, to be responsible for some of these phenomena." And so, you had um, physicists like Eugene Wigner who have proposed there could be some kind of cosmic consciousness like god that is responsible for the the um, the, the different phenomena in our universe becoming concrete and actual now vigner was not a christian but uh he did uh you know reason his way to quantum mechanics could imply the existence of a god or something like a god um And then, of course, the double slit experiment, people can look that up and see what that's all about for themselves. But that's an example of quantum mechanical phenomena where you fire particles like photons or electrons through a pair of slits. And depending on whether you measure them or not, they either behave like particles or they behave like waves. And it's the measurement that you take that determines their behavior. Uh, that makes it concretely one or the other, whether you take the measurement or not. And that's been seen as an example of consciousness interfering with the quantum mechanical process and making it take a certain form. So it has been proposed these days, but it's not a majority opinion. Um, There are a lot of other ways of interpreting quantum mechanics. and, um, and, And these days... Most physicists have, instead of been talking about consciousness being necessary, have been talking in terms of measurements being necessary to cause certain things to happen, or observations, um, which they define in such a way as a mechanical device can make an observation. It doesn't require it to be a consciousness. It could just be a camera, or, you know, some other measuring device, and it's the observation by the measuring device that is enough to produce the effect. You don't need it to be a conscious one. Um, Having said that, it's worth exploring different arguments for the existence of God, and in my book, A Daily Defense, I actually did uh, propose a quantum mechanical argument for the existence of God. So we'll have a link to a daily defense so you can get that and read the argument, which does turn on um, the role of consciousness in determining quantum mechanical phenomena. It's just a proposal. It depends on the assumptions you make, um, but it is something that has been proposed by others, and I offer a version of it in a daily defense.
0: Kathy Sehu writes, I'm just rereading Lucifer's Hammer, the novel about a comet hitting Earth. They're talking about how big a comet would make, a how big a splash, so to speak, and speculating about Hudson Bay and the Sea of Japan being ancient comet comet strikes. I also seem to remember something about plans to destroy a comet in space before it hits Earth. A show on all that would be cool, and probably it's already on the list.
1: Well, certainly we have a show on planetary defense systems on the list. Uh, you know, as they sometimes say over on Instantlandet, Asteroids are just nature's way of saying, how's that space program going? Um, so uh, so we will be talking about that. Now, I haven't read Lucifer's Hammer. It's by Larry Niven and Jerry Pornell, and I've actually read a bunch of their books. I've never read that one, but I have read another book of theirs that, um, that involves planetary bombardment. It is called Footfall, and it is, it is a really good read. Um, we encounter our first aliens and they're not much more technologically advanced than we are, but they have a sort of custom of softening you up before they conquer you. And the way they soften us up is they drop an asteroid in the Indian ocean. That's the footfall. And, um, humanity then has to deal with these aliens and, um, there is a great moment at the end of the book where one of the characters delivers the line, this is the price of the foot. And wow, is it a powerful moment. <laughs> um, so, uh, so uh, you know, check out Footfall, and we will definitely be talking about um, planetary defense in the future, including, and we'll also um, I'm, at, at various points be talking about how, various geological formations got on Earth, including things like big bays and so forth. Um, I personally would be skeptical about Hudson Bay or the Sea of Japan being comet strikes. I'd love to see some evidence, but I'd be um, skeptical of that. But there are some crazy theories about how various bays and seas got here, and we'll be talking about that in particular when we talk about the growing Earth theory.
0: Interesting. Uh, I I know, I'm sure we'll talk about in when we talk about planetary, planetary defense, the recent NASA mission, the DART mission back in September 22, uh, that they tried to prove they could move an asteroid if they needed to. So, um, yeah, I don't think they sent Bruce Willis and a bunch of Wildcat uh, oil (laughs) trailers. All right. Our next question comes from Scott Shields, who says, my question relates to something that you mentioned in an episode of Secrets of Doctor Who. In the episode where you discussed the horror of Fang Rock, you mentioned the Max Headroom Signal hijacking. My question is, how do you think they did it? Do you know if there are any ideas on who who, who did it? My first guess would be that it was an inside job, but that seems unlikely since it happened on both WGN and WTTW.
1: Okay, so the Max Headroom uh, Signal hijacking was an event that occurred back in 1987 when uh, a Chicago TV station was playing an episode of the Tom Baker era Doctor Who episode, "The Horror of Fang Rock," where just for once everybody dies. Um, and that's an inside Doctor Who joke. Um, but there was a somebody who interrupted the broadcast. And it actually happened on two different Chicago stations, um, one after the other for a few seconds. And he was wearing a max headroom mask and saying bizarre things and doing bizarre things. And it, it, it was, it, it took a few moments before the stations could get it off the air. So, um, this was a, um, This was a notable event. Doctor Who fans who were taping the program captured it on their VCRs. And so you can still watch the signal intrusion today from both stations. Um, We will have a couple of links to articles that you can read about it. In terms of it being an inside job, one of the things they found was that there were no engineers on duty at the time in stations. So it was like they'd set up the tapes and left for the day and they were just playing overnight. Um, And and that's, in fact, part of why it took them uh, as long as it did to get it off the air, because there was nobody there um, who was an engineer monitoring the equipment. And now there hypothetically could have been engineers there who were off the clock and not reported in, So it could have been an inside job in that way. But the FCC did a huge investigation of this after it happened. Um, And what they concluded was that it was done uh, by somebody who had a, a, a dish antenna that was outside of the two stations, but was in line of sight with them and they using their dish antenna they they projected to the uh, stations like uh, relays it's towered um, a more powerful microwave transmission than the stations themselves were broadcasting so they basically barreled in with this more powerful system that you know overrode or blanked out or you know covered up what the stations were actually transmitting and they found the location where where this would, could you know, you could kind of do it for, for both of these stations. So it was apparently someone just brought in a dish, um, didn't have to be an inside employee. There was a, a hacking community at the time um, that could have been responsible. There were things going on at the time, like phone freakers who were people that would, you know, uh, hijack telecommunication systems and make them do what they wanted. And there were, um, you know, people with broadcast experience. I mean, it could have been a disgruntled employee or something, but it could have been somebody else. And they never identified who it was. They had lots of suspects, but they were never able to 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 settle on one person. And there have been rumors over over the years about who it might have been the person that has attracted the most attention was a gentleman named Eric Fournier, or Fournier. And he, his friends suspect it was not him. But he's the one that's been attracted, that attracted the most attention. One of the reasons being that um, the Max Headroom character acts really bizarrely. He does not act. I mean, Max Headroom himself acted bizarrely, if you remember that show. But um, but this guy is like way over the top beyond weird. And Eric Fournier or Fournier also made videos that were cheap and way over the top weird. Um, He's known for having created a character named Shea St. John and Shea St. John is a fictional character who is a model that was injured in a car accident and had to rebuild her body using mannequin parts. So he made videos about Shea St. John, and it looks totally bizarre because it's a person combined with mannequin parts, and and, and this is in ni- 1980s homemade video stuff. It's really weird looking. It's really bizarre. We'll have a link to a Shea St. John video, uh, so you can see what it was like, um, of Shea St. John doing the hand thing. (laughs) And there's nothing, there's nothing dirty in this, but wow, it is weird. Um, (laughs) especially the first time you watch it. Um, it's like, what is going on here? Um, but, because he made these weird videos, uh, people thought maybe it was Eric Fournier, and um, his friends suspect it was not that he wasn't even in Chicago on the day according to to them, or they're not sure he was in Chicago on the day. Um, so we really don't know who did it, but there's some interesting um, we'll have some interesting links for you to follow up with.
0: All right. Our next question comes from Max Stuckey, who says, What do you think caused the Belgian UFO sightings in the early nineteen nineties? The triangular UFO type seems to appear from time to time around the world.
1: Yeah. Um, so in the nineteen nineties in Belgium, there were these sightings of black triangular triangular UFOs. And Anytime there, and we'll have a link, by the way, so you can read about the Belgian UFO wave, but um, anytime that you have black triangle UFOs, my first thought is stealth craft, because that's what stealth craft today look like. The, you know, you have the stealth bomber, the stealth fighter, they're black triangles. You know, you see them from a distance, it looks like a triangle in the sky. So anytime I hear about black triangle UFOs, especially ones that are roughly plane-sized, now there are claims of black triangles that are like a mile wide, and, um, and, and those might be something different. Um, but any roughly plane-sized black triangle UFO, I think the logical first interpretation of it is it's a self-craft that is of human origin and is just classified. So it, it, that's why it hasn't been recognized and that's why it's hard to get data about it. And that's why the government says, oh no, we had no planes flying up there at that time. Um, but I, I, I suspect the Belgian UFO wave, and I haven't researched it in detail yet. I, I do plan on doing that. And you know we can have a future episode on the Belgian UFO wave. But my suspicion is that classified United States stealth planes were would have been at the root of that. That would be my first pass interpretation before digging into the evidence.
0: All right. Our next question comes from Matthew Shaniuk, and he says, my question's related to the resurrection of the body. So our faith teaches us that there will be a resurrection of the body at the end of time. But what happens to those saved souls who die before that? There's also a teaching that great saints like Mary and Elijah went with their body right into heaven. So are they currently sitting in the physical heaven all by themselves? One of my theories is that heaven is somehow outside the space-time continuum, so it might be some type of wibbly-wobbly time kind of thing, but I was curious if the church had some official teaching on it, or if you had some theory.
1: Well, in terms of what happens to—so let's take the questions one at a time. In terms of what happens to saved souls before the resurrection, they exist in what's known as the intermediate state. And this is a state where they don't have bodies. That's why it's intermediate. It's between when you have a body and when you get a body back, and it's between those. Um, And they experience— Different things. Um, One of the things they may experience is purgatory, where they get cleaned up for heaven, or they, uh, if they don't need purgatory, or if they're done with purgatory, then they're they're existing in heaven uh, without a body. And um, we see pictures of this in the New Testament, such as in the Book of Revelation. If, of course, they aren't saved, well, then they it would exist in the intermediate state also, but they would be lost, so they'd experience the bad place. Um, when it comes to uh, saints like Mary, who we know has a body with her in heaven, and Elijah is also reported to, yeah, presumably they're in heaven, and they have bodies, which tells us, that um, that heaven is a realm that is at least capable of receiving bodies. The bodies may not manifest in space; they may not be spread out in space the way ours are, but they're there. It can so heaven can at least receive bodies, even if they don't manifest the way bodies here in our world do. Um, and presumably, there are not a lot of people like that in heaven, but they would be spiritually united with all of the souls in heaven. Is heaven outside the space-time continuum? Well, the fact that heaven can receive bodies would indicate that it's, it does have spatiotemporal uh, qualities. It might not be space and time the way they work here in this life, but it would be spatiotemporal. And this actually is um, this actually is something that the church that is part of church teaching. Um, people often get misled about this because they know God is outside of time, and in heaven we go to be with God, and so people start thinking maybe we go outside of time. No, um, the church's understanding is that all created that. God is outside of time. He is eternal in the proper sense, Um, and only he is. Uh, So all created beings, including us, our disembodied souls and angels, are bound by time. Now, it doesn't have to be time the way we experience it here on Earth. In fact, in the Middle Ages, they had various speculations about an alternative way of experiencing time, which shared some properties of how we experience it and some properties of being outside of time. So it would, instead of being time or eternity, they called it ave eternity or avum. And it, and they speculated about how it would work. Um, on the other hand, maybe time works in the afterlife exactly the way it works here, because we do see a progression of events Um, you know, first you die, then you go to purgatory, let's say, then you go to heaven, then you get your body back. Okay, that's a progression. That means some, and those things don't happen to you all at once. There's a difference between being in purgatory, being in heaven, and having your body back. So, So there has to be something that separates those different events. And the thing that, separates different events, is what we call time. So there has to be time of some sort for a departed human soul. And the same would be, according to the church, is true also of angels and uh, and so forth, and basically all created beings. I've, I've written about this. If you go to uh, JimmyAkin.com and search on time and eternity, you'll find articles where I quote, for example, John Paul II on this subject. Um, We'll also have a link uh, in our show notes to an international theological document, commission document that came out in 1992. Uh, The international theological commission is an advisory body. So it's not itself part of the magisterium, but it's an advisory body run by the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith. And it only gets to publish its documents on condition that the magisterium does not have any problem with the documents. And they are meant to represent a kind of theological consensus of Orthodox theologians. And in 1992, they came out with a document, or maybe it was 1990, they came out with a document called Some Current Questions in Eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the last things. It includes the last things of individuals, you know, death, heaven, hell, purgatory, and so forth, and also the last things of the world, um, in, in including the judgment and the resurrection at the end of time. So after the Vatican, Second Vatican Council, there was all kinds of theological chaos. You had theologians speculating all kinds of different ways, including some theologians who were uncomfortable with the idea of a soul existing without a body, And so they proposed maybe there's no time and you just like jump directly to the resurrection. So there's no intermediate state because there's a there's a there's there's no time in the afterlife. And so, when you're just there, Um, well, no not according to church teaching and not according to the International Theological Commission. So um, they do, in this document, discuss the essentially time-bound nature of human spirits, and uh, including in the afterlife. And so you can check that out and uh, read, um, read that document. All right, our
0: next question comes from Colleen Rudolph, who says... In your It's Always Demons episode, you said demon possessions are rare, but the Gospels are littered with demoniacs, especially considering how small the population of the area was at the time. What do you make of this?
1: Well, I wouldn't say littered. Um, there are a number of demoniacs in the Gospels. Um, actually, if you did a count, it's not that huge, but I mean, there aren't hundreds. You know, there's. Are there even a dozen? Um, And I'd have to do a count to find out. But um, the Gospels are not typical of world history. Um, For one thing, they've got Jesus walking around in them. That right there makes them atypical. Um, So we shouldn't expect to to be able to use the Gospels as a model for what happens everywhere in all ages. Um, Also miracles are happening in the Gospels even more than demoniacs. There's a lot more miracles in the Gospels than there are demoniacs, but that doesn't mean miracles are common today. Um, One of the things you find when you study uh, biblical history is that it tends to go in waves. There are certain periods that are very central and important to God's plan, and they tend to have a lot of supernatural activity happening in them. Um, the then there are periods where there's no there's nothing really no changes in God's plan. Things are just kind of coasting, and there are lows in the amount of spiritual activity that are present in those periods. And you see this in the Old Testament, for example, with periods where prophecy becomes very common, and then it fades out, and then it comes back, and then it fades out. And so you have these highs and lows in prophetic activity. And uh, an example of that is, for example, right at the beginning of 1 Samuel, where Samuel's a little boy, and God starts talking to him. And one of the things, that, and he doesn't recognize it's God. And one of the things that it points out is that the the word of the Lord was rare in those days. This is something the inspired author of First Samuel tells us, is that the word of the Lord was rare when Samuel was a boy and people were not frequently getting visions. But then within Samuel's generation, Um, you know, when he anoints King Saul, King Saul starts going down the road and meets a company of prophets that are all prophesying at once. So obviously this has become much more common. And of course, the shift into the monarchy where Israel previously had not had a king, now they've got one. That was a shift in God's plan of the ages because it's setting us up for David, who in turn sets us up for the Messiah. And so you see this burst of supernatural activity in connection with the birth of the Israelite monarchy. And it's only natural when Jesus comes, there's going to be another burst. That's why charismatic gifts like prophecy and um, speaking in tongues and healing were very common in the first century, and less common, but still reported in subsequent centuries. Well, when the forces of good are being extra active, that's often because the forces of darkness are correspondingly being extra active, and the forces of good are meeting the challenge. So, um, you know, the, the devil, knowing the time for Jesus, to come is near, and and, he, and God's plan is at another crucial turning point, he's going to be extra active. I mean, we have evidence from the Gospels of the devil being extra active. You know, he, he appears to tempt or test Jesus. Also, he's got his, his angels, his legions, um, that he's, if, if this is the time of the Messiah, the Messiah is going to be doing stuff. He's going to th- ultimately thwart our plans. This is the time all demonic hands on deck. We need everybody working against God's plans right now in, in Palestine, because the most important divine event in history is occurring now. And so I think that uh, the reason that we have as many demoniacs as we do in the Gospels is in part because this was a major shift in God's plan. Jesus was here, and the devil was correspondingly more active to try to thwart God's plans.
0: All right. And our next question comes from Guy Cappuccino, who writes, Hi, Jimmy. Homo sapiens appeared approximately 300,000 years ago. Approximately. approximately. Mm -hmm. And is there any way to know when God imbued man with an immortal soul that will transcend physical death? It's always seemed arbitrary to me where a distinction would be made in the evolutionary process of mankind as to when an immortal soul would be present. This is, of course, simplified by the Adam and Eve creation narrative. But as a Catholic and a scientist, I subscribe to the evidence that we evolved from lower homonyms,
1: hominids, is it hominids so a hominid is any great ape whether whether they're our ancestors or not so like gorillas and chimpanzees are hominids but they're not our ancestors hominids you think of them as the in group so we, we we descended from them so the hominids those are those weird guys like you know they're they're not us they're not they're not part of our background but the hominids they're our homies they're the ones that are that are tied into the human family tree.
0: And not what I said, which was homonyms, which they sound like us, but <laughs> it's homonyms. Yeah. All right. And to finish. Homonyms sound like, but <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, to finish Guy's question. And if there is no easy way to make a distinction, and we believe all living creatures have a soul, how can we really say that only Homo sapiens souls survive death?
1: Yeah. So this is something that um, that we've talked about on the show before, Um You know, it has been—it is not a matter of church teaching that only uh, humans have souls that survive death. Um, And exactly where in the human family tree you would draw a line and say, okay— after this point, you that humans have souls that survive death, and before this point, they don't um is is something that would be really hard to do in part because the Bible, as I say, you know, talks about what you could call biblical man, which we're included in, but it doesn't it doesn't talk about non biblical man and therefore how you would map biblical man onto the human evolutionary tree. Is 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 not clear at all. Now, one um, proposal that I've considered, and it seems to me to be one of the it seems to me to be one of the better proposals, um, is that it it could be, and this is on the assumption that only humans have immortal souls. But on that assumption, one promising place to draw a line would be the advent of behavioral modernity, which is an event that occurred sometime between 30 and 70,000 years ago. So it's within, it's, let's just call it 50,000 years. You had people before that point who from their from their physical remains were identical to us. They, they, they looked exactly like human beings. But, at least, according to this theory, they did not act like modern human beings and then, roughly fifty thousand years ago, all of a sudden, they start displaying modern human behaviors, including things like having art and you know decorations and um more advanced tools and and just there's this whole bunch of stuff that starts happening in the same time period, it's called sometimes the Great Leap Forward. And so one possible place to draw a line for when would, these, when would our ancestors have acquired a modern human soul would be at the Great Leap Forward. Um, so with the advent of behavioral modernity. But there are reasons you could challenge that. For a start, there have been some challenges on paleontological grounds. Not all paleontologists are convinced that the Great Leap Forward was this sudden event. It, it may have happened more gradually, and that would make it harder to draw a line. Also, there is at least some evidence that some of our other hominid ancestors and relatives um, believed in an afterlife, uh, because they buried their dead, and you know we we've got Neanderthal graves, for example. And if you're burying your dead, now that could be for just hygienic reasons, because you know dead bodies can be disease care, can be d- disease vectors, um, you know, and it could just be an instinct to bury your dead to solve that problem, just like you know cats bury their poop. Because if you don't, it can be a disease vector. Um, so they have this instinct that tells them to bury their poop. Well, okay, hypothetically, maybe early humans had a bury, bury dead people instinct. But I think it was more complex than that because um, I suspect that, uh, that the reason they're burying them is because they have a concept of the afterlife. And... I think there's supporting evidence, at least I have read, that there is supporting evidence of them burying things with the dead. So grave goods, like a flute or flowers. And if you're putting grave goods in the grave, that strongly suggests you at least imagine, whether you believe this is literal or not is a different question, but it believes you at least imagine the dead person using the goods in the future that you bury with them, and thus you expect them to have an afterlife. And if you have the concept of the afterlife, I think you've got an afterlife. Um, I don't think God gives people the idea of the afterlife and then, oh, sorry, you're you're worm food. Um, So if if, uh, Neanderthals had the concept of the afterlife, then the advent of behavioral modernity in Homo sapiens would not be a good dividing line because the Neanderthals had been there for a lot longer. And in fact, were, were, were basically extinct by the time behavioral modernity happened in Homo sapiens. So it would push the afterlife farther back into the human family tree. However, all of that, everything I just said, is predicated on the assumption that only humans have a soul that survived death. Well, why should we believe that? It's not church teaching, it's not in the Bible. So um, so so it's actually a matter of philosophical speculation. And if you look at, at people like Thomas Aquinas, they've got philosophical arguments for why they think only the human soul survives death. And since this is not a matter of church teaching, that means the argument, the conclusion, is only as strong as the arguments that support it. So I love thinking about arguments and testing them and seeing how well they work or don't. And so back in episode 203 of Mysterious World, I tested those arguments and I concluded They're not really impressive. The arguments that only humans have a soul that survives death, I'm not convinced. And in fact, as I also discussed in episode 203, um, we've got some evidence that at least some animals survive death. And this is a big shocker for people who don't know it. This is empirical evidence. Um, this is this is something that if you're gonna if you're gonna in, if you're gonna countenance human near-death experiences as evidence for afterlife, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to countenance uh, animal afterlife as well, um, or find another way to explain it away. But we do have this evidence um, based on near-death experience reports that there are animals in the afterlife. So uh, to check all that out, go to mysterious.fm slash 203 for the Animal Afterlife episode.
0: Well, that's all the questions we have for this time. We want to thank all our patrons and especially those who submitted questions. You could submit feedback by going to patreon.com slash starquest or by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page and leaving feedback there. Sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at MIS underscore world. You can do so in the Starquest Discord community at sqpn.com slash Discord. Or call our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. You'll find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at patreon.com starquest and eventually at mysterious.fm slash 248 when we release this episode to all listeners. Until next time, Jimmy Akin, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to and supporting Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World on Starquest.